And now, welcome to the Cood Street Podcast. I'm Gary K. Wolf. Jonathan Strawn could not join us tonight, but we do have two very special guests. Uh, Joe Monty, who is, both guests have been on with us before. Uh, Joe Monty, um, the uh, editor of Saga Press for Simon & Schuster, and Ken Liu, who we talked, early, talked to earlier about the, um, the three-body problem, which he translated for Tor, but who has his own uh, very impressive epic beginning um, with The Grace of Kings, which will be out within days of this podcast being recorded. So thank you, Joe and Ken, for, for being with us tonight. Thank you, Gary. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having us on. So, Joe, where did you get the idea that you could publish a historical epic about China, which has been somehow converted into an archipelago of islands that don't look anything like China, and make a bestseller out of it? <laughs> you know, honestly, uh, take take the fact that it's Ken Liu out of the equation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think if you if if, if it wasn't Ken, I think the the certainly the most interesting art happens um, where the field is going and then it goes off a little bit slant. You know, and I think that's also where the bestsellers actually come in. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there, there's a, there are trends, there, there are movements and zeitgeists, and then the ones that just go a little bit off, those are the ones that break out. Um, so, uh, added a factor that, you know, Ken's one of the most uh, lauded short story writers in uh, a generation of two. Um, you know, it's. I have high hopes. <laughs> well, that's, oh, but, but Ken, that's a, that's an interesting point uh, that, that Joe makes, and I uh, I actually I actually mentioned this in my review, which neither of you have seen yet. Um, but it's it's the pressure that seems to come with someone who has an enormous reputation for short fiction, and in your case, for translated fiction as well. Um, everybody's waiting for the first novel. You know. Um, when everybody's waiting for Kelly Link's first novel, everybody was waiting for M. Rickard's first novel. Does that, do you feel any kind of pressure from that at all, that you've been working in short forms and now people expect something big from you? Um, this, is, this is actually a tough question to answer because um, I started this novel four years ago. So um, the pressure mostly was just trying to finish it and make it as good as I can. Uh, mm. I really wasn't thinking too much about um, the whole reputation thing because I didn't have a reputation well, <laughs> at the time I started the novel. Um, so no, not not certainly not during the, the writing of it, no. Well, I guess the thing that interests me about it is that it, it seems to me, and, and, and Joe, you and I talked about this a little bit, uh, it seems to me that a lot of the techniques that you use in short stories show up in the novel. Uh, which is frankly kind of unusual for what we would normally think of as an epic fantasy. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you, you picked that up. So um, it, it's interesting, you know, uh, I, I've been uh, talking about this with people, which is, you know, just how much of what you've learned in short fiction translates to novel writing. And mm -hmm. um, the answer generally is not much. Uh, I mean, sure, you know, a lot of craft level, uh, sentence level, uh, sort of things do translate, but structurally it, it doesn't really. Uh, and so that was something I had to learn. Um, but I was lucky in that I ended up um, picking a structure for the novel where my short fiction chops could actually be of use. Um, so uh, it probably helps to sort of just explain a little bit about the novel so mm -hmm. uh, listeners well, yeah, let's know talk some, what yeah, we're talking about. Some background about it. Yeah, so um, the novel um, is an epic fantasy, and it tells the story of uh, two people, um, a carefree sort of loosey-goosey uh, bandit um, and uh, a very noble aristocratic um, scion of, a, of a, 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 Duke, a duke's family. Um, come together and become friends uh, in a rebellion against a tyrannical emperor. And as they grow and gain strength uh, in this rebellion, they complement each other because their strength and weaknesses are very different, uh, and, and they, they actually work really well together. Um, but because they come from such different backgrounds and they have such different personalities and they have very different ideas about what justice and a better world means, um, they ultimately end up becoming rivals just as they're succeeding in 
uh, toppling uh, the evil emperor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the, the story then goes from there as the two uh, good friends turning to rivals and, uh, um, and engaging this massive war uh, against each other. Um, so that's the, that's the basic story. And it actually is a reimagining uh, of a set of historical legends around the rise of the Han Dynasty in China. And in writing the the novel, I decided to uh, the, the the basic project of the novel is to do something kind of interesting uh, to me, which is mm-hmm. to take a foundational narrative from another culture. Uh, in this case, uh, Chinese uh, the Chinese literary tradition. Um, the the story of uh, of the the source material for this novel, um, the the rise of the Han Dynasty, is a foundational narrative for the Chinese. Um, it's it's like the Iliad or the Odyssey, you know, is is foundational to the West, or Beowulf is for English literature. Mm. Um, it, it is the it's the Ur text that all following narratives reference or uh, try to subvert or try to uh, retell in some way, shape, or form. Um, and I wanted to take such a foundational narrative from Chinese literature and uh, quote unquote translate it. Um, into the language of modern English epic fantasy and and try to see what I can do um, in terms of questioning both the source material and also the genre that it's being translated into. Um, So part of what I did was I took a lot of narrative techniques from uh, Chinese literary tradition as well as from Western epic tradition and melded them together. And one of the things about the Chinese literary tradition um, uh, on this sort of historical romance level is they they tend to have a huge cast of characters and it's not easy to pick out um, a, a core narrative strand mm. the way a lot of modern epic fantasies do. And the story, the overall story advances by these side stories of individual characters. You meet them and then the narrative sort of pauses as you dive into a sight line um, and then learn about the the individual story of that character before uh, coming back and realizing that the plot had been advanced a little bit already just with that side story. Um, and this technique and structure allowed me to uh, sort of treat these side stories as though they are separate short stories. Exactly, um, yeah. And then write them that way. So um, half of the novel uh, being, uh, being made up of these side stories, I could use my short story skills to... To, to write them um, while at the same time learning how to do the structure for a much larger work. So that's that's the answer to your question at the beginning. Well, and it does. I want to I want to get into that business of uh, of these side stories because that's where I saw the short stories functioning. But uh, but you're also uh, correct in that this is not a formula fantasy, and you're not trying. If, if you're taking historical material, I guess you have the option of trying to hammer it into a familiar fantasy formula. So what I want to ask Joe, who has read a lot of uh, traditional fantasy uh, and knows the field and knows what's familiar and what isn't familiar, and for that matter, Joe, who by publishing this novel in a, in, in a new imprint on, on which your entire life and career depend, um, what did you see that was different about this? What struck you about The Grace of Kings when you first saw it? Well, as, as Ken touched upon, I mean, uh, it's... It's the Iliad. It's it's the Aeneid. It's War and Peace. Um, you know, it's uh, and yet, you know, it, it's a character-driven epic fantasy. Yes. He's retelling the uh, the epic stories of the past and the modern form, which is the epic fantasy novel. Um, you know, I'm a big proponent of fantasy literature. Uh, to paraphrase the Grinch quote, you know, taking. Uh, um, in a journey, you know, uh, outwardly, and um, you know what Ken's exploring here uh, are different nuances uh, of that, but also the historical perspective, that kind of David Lean uh, epic sweep that you don't see a lot of. I mean, you, you get tight, narrow focus here, tight, narrow focus there. That's that's broken up by chapters, and then the bigger picture comes together to the reader, um, but not necessarily on the page, and. That's what Ken's playing with—that uh, distance of perspective. I think yeah. it's interesting the three novels, the three books that you just mentioned, 
Um, the Iliad and the Odyssey and War and Peace, one of those is a classic historical novel with dramatized scene after dramatized. I actually read it when I was in high school, so I know what I'm talking about, even though I don't remember <laughs> anything about it at all. Um, You're a professor. It's okay. It's okay. I can get away with it. But the thing is that there are long passages in War and Peace that are, that are told tales. And the Iliad and the Odyssey are essentially told tales. And it, one of the questions that fascinates me about, about writing a long fantasy like this, and we should mention that this is only the beginning of a series called uh, The Dandelion Dynasty, is how do you decide, Ken, when you're going to dramatize a scene, sometimes a very intimate scene between a husband and a wife, between talking to a beggar by the side of the road, and when you're going to tell the tale in this kind of epic voice that you get in Homer. Right, right. Um, so this is, um, uh, how do I decide? This is, this is very interesting. So when I was writing this novel, I did a lot of study of, um, of both Western epics uh, and the Chinese source material, mm. uh, which is uh, Sima Qian's uh, records of the Grand Historian. Um, Sima Qian is sort of considered the father of Chinese history, much like Herodotus is okay. for the West. Um, and the way he wrote histories was in this format where he wrote um, uh, biographies of the important characters, uh, quote unquote, uh, of history. Uh, and you put these biographies together, and you get your you get history. Um, you know, in an approach that's not unlike Plutarch's parallel Plutarch's lives. lives, yeah. Um, so, because he, he does this, and, and one of the things about Sima Qian that's really interesting is, um, actually, he's a little bit like Thucydides in that way, too. Um, he, 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 he would start by, you know, describing the childhood of, of some important historical figure, and then get into um, these asides about big sweeping backgrounds and then zoom in um, you know several years later mm -hmm. in, in his life and he, he paints these very vivid portraits of people um, by by using a very very economical um, uh, sort of prose um, and it's just it's just really interesting to me to, to read the classical Chinese uh, text and, and see what he's doing he, he uses a lot of uh, techniques that I think would appear postmodern uh, to a, to a reader, hmm. um, the way he, he he sort of changes perspective uh, sometimes within the very same sentence, uh, and so that was very fascinating to me. Um, and I, I I certainly remember how in Beowulf you have these interchanges where um, you you have the grand uh, epic voice telling you about you know what's happening to Beowulf's mm -hmm. reign uh, in, in his later years, and then uh, and and then the coming of the dragon. Then suddenly uh, you, you get into this very intimate battle scene where uh, Beowulf and his kinsmen are exchanging this uh, this very very moving conversation, and, and the, the conversation, if you will, is the, the soul of of, of that battle. Uh, and so, I, I, what I realized was that a lot of the aesthetics of these um, epics are similar to the way um, traditional Chinese arts like calligraphy and brush painting uh, do their work, which is to emphasize the negative space huh. uh, and, and to um, ensure that you, you don't need to do the thing that a lot of, I think, um, uh, contemporary modern uh, epic fantasies do, which is to focus very, very tightly on the perspective and individual character and then tell the story um, in, in, in great detail and really delve into the psychological development of, of each character because I think that's a legacy of modernism where we are really interested in the interior lives of individual characters. But, but I realize that you don't, you don't have to do that all the time. You can do that as select moments and then you can leave the rest in negative space and then just let um, the epic voice sketch it in a couple of sentences and, and then just get on with it. Um, and I, I found that technique to actually be effective because what you end up doing is you, you imply the brutality and the, the, the massive scale of some of these events in the background um, without having to uh, have some character move through it um, uh, like a camera uh, and, and, and report every single detail. You can leave a lot of negative space and still uh, give the reader uh, reader's imagination room to fill in the blanks 
Uh, and so that's what I did. I, I chose to leave a lot of negative space and then focus on just a few key moments. Well, that was um, one of the things that struck me. And, and, and there's one uh, particular thing which, uh, which I, I did mention in the review. And I, I, as long as we're being vague, we're not talking about spoilers here anyway. But, but there's, a, there's a city which gets just completely wiped out. It's sacked, destroyed, burned, plundered, pillaged, and a couple of paragraphs. Um, and then, not long after that, you have a scene that goes on for several pages involving uh, a discussion with a, uh, uh, an elderly woman beggar by the side of the road, who turns out to be much more than that. But you know, that sort of uh, perspective, that shift in perspective, is not what we expect. I mean, what we would expect in the formula fantasy would be two or three chapters on the burning of the city, and, right. then, and then a sentence or two about a beggar woman. That's right. Um, I, I, you know, that, that, that's, that's an example of what I was trying to do, where um, I, I didn't want to fetishize the violence. Uh, there, there is a lot of violence, violent events yeah, in the yeah. big fantasy. I mean, that's just the way it is. I mean, thousands of people die in these massive wars. Um, and I, I'm not, you know, shying away from that. The, 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 the problem is, I think when you, when you always use a very tight, narrow focus um, it, it, it tends to desensitize the reader somewhat to, to this sort of thing because you have to sort of outdo yourself every time, whereas I don't think that's necessary. I, I think it's, it's perfectly okay to say, um, here, here the, 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 city, the city has been sacked, and um, what happens next is the sort of thing that we know from every war that has ever happened in the history mm. of the world. Um, and rather than linger over that process let's jump to the moment after that when the conqueror is parading through the the ruined streets uh and then here is one survivor who who comes up and they have a conversation and in that conversation um is implied all the all the horrors that we're not seeing directly uh, mm -hmm. and what we're really interested in is what is the psychology of of, of the conqueror um uh, as he sees this this moment, uh, this this moment of of, of tranquility, after a, a massive chaotic set of events, um, what does he what does he think about his handiwork? Uh, and I think that to me is uh, is more effective, uh, and it also uh, harks back to that epic tradition of of telling not being afraid to uh, get omniscient and and distant and and just tell you in a historian's voice, what happened. And, and Joe, that's what you meant when you used the phrase a character-driven fantasy? Uh, exactly. I mean, you know, I think this is, this is the Ken Liu story, right? You know, um, it's, he, it still boils down to focusing on uh, a handful, ten or so characters, you know, and that's what's fantastic about it, you know, about having that tight, narrow focus. You get the grand sweep and yet a character-driven uh, work that, you know, I think readers do expect in this kind of epic fantasy. And so it's all there. Right. I think one of the things that struck me about that, that focusing on characters in terms of uh, the, two, the two characters who become rivals uh, is that with, with enough of a backstory, a character who um, emerges or could easily emerge as a villain in the second half, is somebody that, whose backstory we see. So basically, um, you know, b by the end of the novel, it looks like one of these two characters is the bad guy. But we see his background. We know what he's been through. And it's very difficult to assign heroic and villainous roles to characters that we know that much about. Right, right. That is definitely one of the things I wanted to make sure comes across. Because this is actually... a a key feature of, of um, these old epics, too. Um, you know, in the Iliad, the Trojans are portrayed uh, with great empathy. Um, mm -hmm. they're, they're not villains. Uh, they happen to lose um, because they're on the wrong side. But, um, you know, Hector is a great hero, um, and, uh, and, and they're, they're, they're written and treated with great respect. And uh, in the original biographies of, um, of Sima Qian, from which I based, the, the source material, um, the, the character who may seem like a villain is actually the one that the historian writes with great empathy for. Um, and, um, and the one who we would expect 
to be portrayed as the great hero because, you know, he, after all, was the founding emperor of the Han Dynasty, uh, is actually portrayed somewhat negatively uh, to, mm. to latter generations' great surprise. And this is, has always been um, something debated uh, among Chinese historians, you know, why Sima Qian chose to write these biographies in this way where he was uh, ostensibly singing the praises, if you will, uh, of the of the one person who is the um, the enemy of the regime. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting, but there's a, there's a lot of uh, uh, empathy and, and, and admiration that comes across clearly in the prose for that character. Um, and so for me, I, I wanted to achieve that effect where you, you don't see simply um, a hero and a villain. Mm. Uh, there, there, there is a lot of shades of gray, uh, which is kind of unfortunate as a phrase now, but uh, there, yeah. there, there really are shades, um, uh, not just black and white, um, in, in, in the political motivation and, and, um, and uh, techniques of these characters. Um, so, so the novel ends up asking questions about what is honor? Um, the grace of kings, you know, which is uh, a quote from Henry V, mm-hmm. is very much about this. Uh, and like Henry V, it's uh, it's it's a political. It's it's ultimately a political story. It's about what what does it mean to be honorable, and is individual honor compatible with kingship, uh, and the sort of the, the 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 grace of kings is opposed to the honor of individuals, ah. and and that's the kind of um, uh, overall. Uh, uh, conflict, philosophical conflict that I wanted to explore. And also one, one more thing, which is that um, this is another thing I found really interesting, which is writing about the character that you, you, know, you say uh, turns out to be quote-unquote the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is really interesting to me because, uh, as Joe mentioned, one of the um, ways to describe this novel is it's the Aeneid or the Iliad as a modern epic fantasy. And uh-huh. part of the problem of that is if you really try to rewrite the Iliad as a modern contemporary fantasy, you'll soon find that one of the great difficulties is translating the character motivations um, into, a, into a form that we can understand. Because uh-huh. if you read about the wrath of Achilles and you read about um, the, 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 the cause of the war and the way these Greek and Trojan heroes behave, they sound like they sound like sociopaths um, because their 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 desires and motivations and what they consider to be virtues are so different from us that that the sensibility is very alien uh, and and you have to somehow figure out a way to to get the readers to sympathize with these characters unless you want to you know change that entirely and it's the same thing with this novel the 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 the, the motivations and desires of the characters are based on a culture so different from contemporary America that a lot of the things they consider to be inviolate, uh, self-evident truth are not so to us. And, and some of the things that drive them are things that we don't understand. So, again, I had to figure out a way how to, how to make that work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that also added levels of complexity and moral ambiguity to, to the story, and I think ultimately to the benefit of the novel. So. That, that's that's my uh, little thought. I agree. That. I mean, it's it's interesting. A few years ago, there was a very, very good modern novelistic revision of a part of the Aeneid by Ursula Le Guin called Lavinia. And one of the things that uh, is um, interesting about Lavinia, amusing about the character, uh, is that she's always complaining about the way Virgil wrote about her. Uh, in other words, this is essentially taking a modern sort of character and imposing it on a, on, on a different set of values. And I think you do that a little bit too. I mean, there are, I mean, my, my sense of the novel is that a lot of readers are going to want to um, naturally identify with a character that looks most like us. Cooney is, is, he's small, he's smart, he's a trickster. He's very funny. And one of the things I do want to get into, uh, which I find Unfortunately, rare in modern fantasies. There are some very funny bits when he's outsmarting the. Um, oh yeah, I'm glad you uh, you you yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah, I put that in, and I wasn't sure how people would react. But uh, yeah, that, that's definitely something I wanted to do. I mean, there there are. I mean, he could have been. His dialogue could have been written by S. J. Perlman for a Marx Brothers movie in a couple of these fast double talk things. That's uh, awesome. <laughs> and, 
and it, and it occurs early in the, in the novel, which is, which is a way, I think, of telling readers, you can have fun with this. This is an enjoyable character. He's somebody uh, that, you know, you, you, you want him to succeed because he's just such a con man. That, from an American reader's perspective, is the guy we want. That is, that is James Garner is Maverick, it's whoever you want. But your other major character is barely human. He's a giant, he's got double pupils in his eyes, uh, he has a tragic history, there's no doubt about that. But uh, he's the closest thing consistently in the novel to a supernatural figure that you've got outside of the gods themselves, and that's something else we can talk about in a minute. Mm-hmm. That's right, that's right. No, he's, he's Achilles. He's Hector. Well, yeah, he really is. He, he is a superhero. <laughs> yeah. And that, that actually is a, is a deliberate choice as well, because part of the, um, part of the arc of the overall series is that... Um, his 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 supernaturalness he he sort of represents so in some ways you can sort of view these two characters as two forces um pushing towards you know uh, different visions of what is a better world mata mm. you know the giant that you talk about yeah is someone from uh, a much older tradition a much older way of doing things he wants to return to the status quo ante um before all this happened because he believed that restoration of that past is the mm. path um, to to a just world, um, and Cooney is not. Cooney is much more malleable, and he's willing to to try new things. Mm -hmm. um, and and you know, part of uh, part of the marketing pitch uh, I have for this book is I call it soap punk, and uh, I want to talk about the punk part here yeah. a little bit, which yeah. is that you know a lot of times you you have these novels um, with the punk suffix, and they, they're not really punkish at all. Um, <laughs> uh, but but I, I do want to take that seriously here, and, and I want to write. Um, about uh, change and revolution. The, the, the novel, in some ways, is a political meditation on the meaning of revolutions and, and how to have a successful revolution. Um, and the series as a whole is really about that. So, so you do have these two very different characters representing two very different ideals um, about how to make the world better. Uh, and the rebellious, experimental... Um, uh, you know, willing to do the quote-unquote interesting thing is 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 the key here, and and he is the force of of being being you know punkish, and that's that's kind of the point here. Okay, because I, I was I was gonna I was gonna argue about that, but I I think you have a point. Uh, I mean, I, I you're right. Punk as a suffix has just been beaten to within an inch of its life. Um, I I had assumed I'd, I'd seen you use the word silk punk, and I thought that probably referred to the kind of oddly 19th century technologies uh, that occur. There, there, are, uh, there are hot air balloons, there are uh, right, it controllable does. I kites. I can talk about that too. That, that part yes. is also fun. But, but let's, let's, let's finish this thought first. Okay. No, 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 go ahead. Oh, you, you, no, you the, no yeah. the thought was, I, 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 I guess that usually when, when the suffix punk uh, is used these days, um, going back to, I guess, I guess it's all K.W. Jeter's fault because he's the one who wrote a letter to Locust saying, let's call ourselves steampunks. Uh, <laughs> right. Is that right? I didn't actually even know oh, that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a famous letter he wrote to Locust. He's talking about himself and Jim Blaylock and Tim Powers uh, and that Victorian fantasy. Uh, and since then, it's like everything punk. But punk always seems to have some reference um, to a technology now. I mean, if you, if you go back to punk, punk origins back in Seattle... Uh, it was clearly an attitude and a style, but but since then it's, it seems to me to uh, refer largely to Victorian technology, to Edwardian technology. There's something called Tesla punk, you know. There's manor punk, uh, and so when I saw you use the term, I assumed you were referring to the to the technologies, which uh, are fairly spectacular, but uh, but 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 seem oddly modern in the context of what otherwise looks like a medieval story. Right, right. So, so let, let's jump to the technology side. So, okay. uh, the, the punk part I explained. Uh, okay, yeah, the the silk part I, I need to explain now. So, usually when you invent one of these punk terms, you, you, you stick some sort of technology or some mode of energy right. production in front of it, and then that's to um, sort of give you a sense of the technology um, at issue uh, and the technology, the level of technology uh, or alternative technology that you're, you're trying to imagine. Um, 
And so um, soap pump here, soap is obviously not a technology or a, uh, well, it is a technology, but yeah. it's not, it's not technology in the sense of, you know, uh, steam or diesel or, or something like that. And it's not a, it's not a mode of, uh, providing power. It's not a power source. Um, I, I use it consciously because, um, what I'm trying to do here is to use silk to represent a particular type of aesthetic and a type of technology vocabulary that I'm trying to mm. uh, invent and use here. So, um, as you were mentioning, the the technologies in this novel seem oddly 19th century. Um, that 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 is actually sort of an illusion. Um, mm -hmm. the, the 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 technologies I'm using and inventing for the novel um, uh, are just one part of an overall aesthetic uh, that I want to achieve. Mm -hmm. That I I'm, I'm using silk to sort of describe it. So the idea here is, just like steampunk is a uh, sort of a blend, uh, or at least as it's being written, it's sort of a blend between um, uh, science fiction and fantasy in that a lot of the steampunk uh, technologies and contraptions and, and so on that are uh, put into these novels, steampunk novels, are, are not in fact really practical. Uh, no. Some And sometimes they explicitly make reference to some type of magic, you know, uh, mesmerism, that sort of thing. Um, and so, soap punk is also an aesthetic. It's a it's a it's a blend of of technology and magic. And the idea here is, I wanted to create a new technology vocabulary that's based around materials of historical significance to East Asia. So, uh -huh. bamboo, silk, paper, um, and as well as a lot of organic materials that would be important to a seafaring culture because my novel is set in an archipelago. So corals, mm -hmm. um, uh, coconut, um, shells, uh, and then uh, other organic materials like feather and obviously wood. And, and so the overall idea is to create a technology vocabulary that's very organic. And the way the machines are designed draw their inspiration from biomechanics. So uh, this is why... Um, the airships in the novel are propelled by these giant feathered wings, uh -huh. uh, and they they draw their inspiration from these actual um, birds uh, that 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 are filled uh, with a kind of lift gas that allows them to achieve flight despite their relatively smaller wings. Um, and so, <clears throat> if you if you try to read through the the listing of technologies in the novel. Almost all of them draw some kind of inspiration from from biology and biomechanics, hmm. and so the overall effect um, is a very different kind of aesthetic. So, if you remember the airships, they um, regulate their buoyancy by contracting, compressing, and expanding their uh, uh, gas bags. Right. This is actually a different way of doing it than the way our zeppelins worked, but this would work also. This this method is much more similar to the way that fish regulate their buoyancy using swim bladders. And the, the way um, the technology functions allows it to um, achieve a look that's very uh, um, animal-like. So, you know, at night, when one of these ships is lit up and it sort of swims through the, the air using these giant feathered oars um, as the internal uh, gas bladders are uh, expanded or contracted to to regulate the buoyancy, um, and it's lit up from the inside. It looks like one of those giant jellyfish pulsating through uh, an Empyrean sea, uh, and so that's kind of the effect I wanted to to mm -hmm. achieve with this this new aesthetic um, that that's different from steam steampunk, uh, and yet is uh, has has a kind of relationship to it. You know, steampunk is very focused on these chrome, brass, yeah. um, glass. Uh, based kind of hard um, look, uh, a very constricted, regulated um, kind of look, like a corset. Yeah, silk funk is is different. You know, it's mm -hmm. much more about soft softness. It's about um, flexibility, hmm. uh, and it's about being alive. And that aesthetic is carried through the novel as well as the series. And uh, I, I do take the technology to a different level in the next sequel. So it will be even more fun. I guess my question uh, to you, Joe, is uh, 
I know editors are probably smarter than I am, or they wouldn't be editors. But did you see all this stuff when you were reading the novel the first first time? I mean, what 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 did you see? I mean, I saw. <laughs> just answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so I have a smattering. I read uh, translation of *Romans of the Three Kingdoms*. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot of Hong Kong films. Uh, some Wuxia literature. Uh, oh, *Snowy Mountain*. What am I thinking of, Ken? Um, Fox, Fox Valiant. Uh, and yeah, so I had some cultural uh, touchstones to like know what he was doing. I mean, I keep yeah. setting Ken up, uh, you know, really and, and and whatnot, War and Peace, but. Uh, yeah, so those elements, but um, the silk punk, uh, I just took naturally. I was like, okay, well, all right, yeah, all right. I just went along with it, but, uh, you know, I mean, this is the thing that's so wonderful about Kent is that um, my edits were largely about character motivations, and uh, it wasn't about world building because everything is meticulously thought out. I mean, as this conversation is progressing, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this is... This is it's not just thought out on one level, it's thought out on multiple levels and how they're all interacting. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it was more about tightening uh, some plot points than anything else for me uh-huh. um, on the book. But, uh, you know, what's, what's great is, is that, again, that sweep, that was the thing. You know, I remember early on, like, is this too much? I actually, you know, had that question to myself. Really? And, uh, and but I took a day. I, I, I slept on it, and I woke up like, no, it's, it's not. It's just different. Is it too much what? Uh, that, 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 that perspective of zooming in, zooming out. Um, mm. You know, uh, and I, you know, realized it, it was about some of my own prejudices, right? Um, because oh. this is what Western literature is. It's versus what Ken was working with. And once I went back, and, oh, that's right. I know what he's playing with, uh, and what he's working off of, and yeah. uh, it all made sense, and it flows. Yeah, I, I think that um, reading something from a uh, which is knowledgeable about a culture other than your own is you always wonder how much you're reading your own values into it. When I was in the fifth grade, um, for some reason uh, I don't know why we had a world history textbook that began with the history of China. And it, it, it was important to me because it was the first time I learned that a textbook could have a thesis. And the thesis of this textbook was that we've, you know, in American schools, always looked at uh, Greek, Roman, English, and American history as being the history. So this, whoever wrote this book, started out with China. So I, by the end of the fifth grade, of course, like in all fifth grade classes, you don't get to the end of the textbook. So by the <laughs> end of the fifth grade, I knew more about China than I did about Renaissance Europe. Um, and That's very rare. It's it's. I think it's probably gone away since then, uh, for a long time. But there, it, but there is a sense that, um, you know, we want to impose a certain reading onto these characters and I, on these events. And the silk punk is something uh, that I would not have thought of as an aesthetic that fits the whole novel and possibly the whole series, probably the whole series. But it makes perfect sense now that you mention it. Um, the other thing which occurred to me, that I'm sure this is going to come up when you talk about this and uh, um, when discussions start about it, I thought that somebody is going to raise the question of, well, okay, you're using Chinese history as a template for an epic fantasy, and isn't that the same sort of thing that Guy Gabriel Kay does? And then I thought, nobody asks that question about medieval European history, which every other fantasy writer in the world seems to draw <laughs> So, so, what's what's you know? Uh, in, in other words, I guess, I guess my conclusion is that that question is pretty much irrelevant. You're not really doing the same sort of thing that guy does at all. Yeah, I think it is pretty different. Um, I mean, you know, uh, I have think you read in, those books yet, Ken? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, okay. in guys, in guys' work, I think. Um, I, I, I mean, okay. So, I, here, here's what I would say about what I'm doing. That's I think interesting. Um, I'm I'm trying to really denature and uh, and sort of estrange um, the history, the source material from mm-hmm. the story I'm trying to tell. Right. Um, in, in some ways, because I think it's it's very hard to write a quote unquote magic China story without um, having to struggle with or against um, the the kind of Orientalism 
that has pervaded a lot of narratives about China um, from the time of Marco Polo, really. Uh-huh. Um, so there's 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 a certain set of colonial gaze and this haze of Orientalism tropes that I think are very hard to 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 pierce through. You know, once you start talking about um, magical China, all the associate ideas about filial piety, about dragons, uh, about you know passive populations. Uh, and, and, and autocracy and collectivism, all this sort of thing sort of pops in and, and makes it very hard to sort of read the characters and, and view the story um, through a, a relatively uncolored lens. Yeah. So I said, you know, that was, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm not going to write a magical China story. I, I'm going to keep the essence of the story and the, the essence of, of, of the moral stance of the characters. But... I'm going to create an entirely new world to tell the story in, so mm-hmm. that people can see the story with fresh eyes uh, and, and to sort of perceive it um, from a perspective that's different than the one they would get if they knew this was a magical China story. Um, and also, uh, just to circle back to your point earlier, um, the, the the other thing about Silk Punk is that um, all the techn- a lot of the technologies that you mentioned here actually do have real um, classical Chinese analogs, like these hot air balloons. Uh-huh. Um, there really were small versions of them uh, being used for military signaling uh, back as far as um, uh, the 2nd century AD uh, and possibly even earlier. Um, and the use of giant battle kites um, for military purposes also was attested to uh, in, in Korean as well as Chinese sources. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, uh, the very first battle kites may have been used um, by the historical general who is the model for uh, Gid Mazzotti uh, oh. later on in the novel. Um, so, so, you know, a lot of this is sort of a homage to the classical Chinese technology tradition. Um, but but the, the bigger point I want to make is you know, we talk a lot about fundamental narratives, about uh, Orientalism, about epic voice and narrative structure and all this stuff. Uh, this is all really interesting to, to, to people like you and me who are really into this sort of thing. But um, my overall guiding principle for writing the book is fundamentally it needs to be fun and needs to delight readers. Um, so all this talk um, is sort of irrelevant if the book isn't fun. And, and so that's well, why, you know, some of the, the humor and, and, and that stuff you, you picked up is in there. I mean, um, you know, I was not ashamed to make this epic fantasy possibly the most tax-driven epic fantasy in history. <laughs> um, uh, the, 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 the concern about tax and the number of characters that have something to do with taxation and, and the discussion about taxation policy, so on and so forth, is, 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 is rampant. And uh, that's because I was a tax lawyer. Uh, I, I, I was a tax nerd. I find this sort of thing really fascinating, the idea of tax being a, um, such a fundamental part of the toolkit of governance and the way you understand a society. Um, uh, I actually wrote a short story um, uh, once that is about an alien tax code being <laughs> read uh, by um, humans and, and trying to understand what that society was like, except they didn't realize it was a tax code, so they were reading it as epic poetry. Um, and uh, if you read the IRS regulations and then look at the the, the volumes and volumes of regulation and, and, and the twenties, uh, uh, you know, the, the the U.S. tax code, you will really feel that it's like an epic. It's the modern epic. That's uh, it's the bureau it's the bureaucratic epic of our age. Uh, and so I, w- I put all that in there, and, uh, and my hope is that people read about this stuff actually will find it fun because I find you know discussions about tax policy and and uh, and and why taxes are the way they are and, and why they're important fascinating. And I, I put it into the book, and I hopefully I wrote it in a way that is interesting. To I, was, I, was, I was just going to say let's back off for a moment here because you don't want potential readers to think that this novel reads like the IRS code. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, no, you don't. But, but my point is that you, you read this and you, you read the tax policy, and I think the reader's reaction ought to be, this is actually kind of fun. This is really neat. Uh, and the idea is that if I can make tax stuff mm-hmm. interesting to people, then all the other stuff will be even more fun. That, that's, that's the hope. Well, part of the, part of the reason the tax resonates with, I think it will resonate with American readers, is you're talking about the effect of taxation policy on those who are taxed. You're talking about the sometimes 
dire effects of, of, of failing to meet your obligations, which of course in American history resonates with the Boston Tea Party and with the American Revolution and all sorts of things. So, so taxation is a big deal um, to American readers. That's right. That's right. It's an important part of our American myth. It's, it's part of our foundational narrative. Exactly. Um, the, but yeah, mentioned- so much of it is coached in, you know, Go ahead, Joel. Just a lot of fun. I'm sorry. Just you know, so much of the taxation is really just capturing a lot of fun. Well, the, the the book, I guess, I guess the novel is um, a lot of fun. And 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 as somebody who has become jaded about uh, epic fantasies, one of the things I've missed, which we talked about, has been has been the humor in it. Another has been the shift in tone. I mean, one of the things that it seems to me most of the Tolkien clone writers have missed is that. Tolkien was a master of tone. There, were, there was very much, he was a very Shakespearean writer. There was very low humor in some of the uh, you know, interactions with Sam Gamgee. The language would literally shift into this sort of Empyrean rhetoric when he was talking about uh, the grand battles. But it, it, it wasn't written in a single tone throughout. And that's one of the things I liked about The Grace of Kings is that the tone shifts in appropriate ways to the scene being described. That's right, that's right. But another thing that, uh, since you mentioned Magic China and the whole, the whole sort of myth of Orientalism that you have to fight your way through, which was, which was the subject of that really good book by Edward Said several years ago uh, called Orientalism, and he was dealing with, you know, with basically Anglo-European atti- romantic attitudes, the Lawrence of Arabia myth kind of thing. Um, and that is the degree of magic to which uh, you permit yourself in a book like this. Um, we, we talked about the steampunk, the, the, the silk punk um, balloons, and there is a kind of magical source of some kind of hydrogen slash helium gas. Um, there are some things in the ocean that uh, are magically, not quite magically, but very intelligent things that I visualize somehow as narwhals. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's what Joe told me as well. Yes, okay. exactly. <laughs> And, uh, and they're the gods who sort of um, quibble among themselves off stage. Is that a good way to put it? That's a good way to put it, yep. And they're, they're not very godlike either. They're, 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 uh, so, but except, if, if, I'm not, if, if I'm not wrong, except for those elements and the, um, the, 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 the character, the, the giant character which we had uh, talked about earlier, Mata, who is more... Um, more more exaggerated than magical, I guess. More yeah, more, he's larger than life. Larger than uh, life, but not really supernatural. Um, apart from that, the magic in the novel is really fairly restrained. Yes, I, I deliberately wanted to 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 make the magic not a controlling aspect of of the world. Um, I mean, you know, I certainly love um, uh, uh, the sort of fantasy where magic is very important and systematized. Mm. Uh, but that, that's not the kind of novel I wanted to write. Um, I wanted to keep magic um, sort of uh, the way uh, traditional Chinese scholars thought about it, which is that they, they're not sure it really exists at all. Um, it, it is used to explain certain things that we can't explain otherwise, you know, mm. kind of the concept of fate, um, the, the idea that sometimes you will meet um, – uh, instruction or serendipity, uh, and, and and receive guidance uh, from somebody uh, who's like a supernatural bit of intervention. But but other than that, the, there is no real magic in the in the world. Uh, the the world of spirits um, is really very separated from our world, and they they don't uh, affect our world directly. Um, but but you know, so that's that's where I want it to be. I, I deliberately. Um, explain why the gods are limited in the ways that they can interfere in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I set them up so that they're very similar to the way um, traditional Chinese folk beliefs uh, perceive uh, gods, uh, which is that they're, they're not really much better than humans. They, I mean, one of the features about um, Chinese fantasy novels like Journey to the West and so on is mm-hmm. that the, the gods behave in a way that's really not godlike at all. Um, you, they, they're, they're much closer to the way um, a Roman poet like Ovid uh, perceived the gods, which is that I don't think he believed in them at all. They're just interesting literary characters and tropes that he wanted to mm-hmm. play with. 
um, and, and they have desires and they have um, uh, they have they have um, jealousies and, and 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 they behave pretty much like people they're just a little bit more powerful than people and that's how the Chinese saw the gods a lot of times uh, you know there's this uh, custom um, on Chinese New Year's where um, you would try to feed the kitchen god uh, sticky rice cakes um, uh, and sweets and the reason is that um, if you feed him enough of this he will be um, his mouth <laughs> will be so stuffed and, and his, his teeth will stick together so that when he goes up to the heavenly court and reports on your doings of uh, the past year, he wouldn't be able to speak. <laughs> and therefore, you know, your, your, um, all the naughty things you did wouldn't be reported to the heavenly king. The idea that you can sort of um, play with the imperial bureaucracy. Oh, here, here's the other thing that's interesting about Chinese mythology, which is that it's very bureaucratic. Mm-hmm. Um, a, lo- a lot of the 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 the, the fun trickster stories um, in in Chinese uh, folk tales involve um, playing these games with the imperial spiritual bureaucracy, um, and and you basically hacking the system via social engineering, uh, and the idea that you can treat the gods this way is very natural um, to to the Chinese belief system, um, and so. Uh, you know, I wanted to get that in there, the, the idea that the gods have a certain plan, that they're trying to um, use their limited ability to manipulate and guide and trick the people into carrying out. Uh, but ultimately, they, they fail. You know, there's that scene at the end, uh, which, mm-hmm. you know, you remember where the gods have a certain uh, plan that's basically a play to, to, to show their their thoughts about, you know, the events that have occurred. Um, and and um, it turns out that one of the gods actually was tricking the other gods into this performance, knowing that the clever humans uh, would uh, come up with a politically expedient interpretation <laughs> um, that would frustrate the plans of the other gods. And, you know, that sort of hackery, that sort of tricky um, uh, tricking um, is, is, is very important. And so I put that in there. And that's, that's kind of the way the magic is used. It's, it's, yeah. it's very faint background. Uh, and not intended to dominate the action at all. Uh, and, you know, there are, like I mentioned there are some imaginary animals and that sort of thing, but, you know, I, I, I guess one of the things you're doing is, and I, I, I think it will work, I hope it will work, but you probably are subverting the expectations of what Western American or English language readers would expect of a Chinese fantasy. We would expect dragons. There are no dragons. Right, exactly. Yes, subverting the expectations is definitely part of the goal here. I mean, if you come into this, um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, other than some uh, the, the the fact that the aesthetic is um, without a doubt derived from East Asian models, the the, the novel does not feel, I hope, um, explicitly Chinese at all, and that that was a deliberate choice. I wanted to meld these Western epic narrative techniques in there. Um, with with the the Chinese tradition, and I wanted to put in this overlay of um, uh, sort of non-Chinese um, kind of uh, cultural elements in there. To again, you know, the point here is to is to pierce through the Orientalism and and, and subvert the the reader's expectations. If they expect this to be a very uh, quote unquote Chinese fantasy, this is not what they're going to get. No, and one of the things that surprised me about it was the extent to which, like I say, some of the early comedy looked like a Marx Brothers movie. Um, the treatment of women in the novel, and I don't want to get into too many details because the people who are listening to this haven't read the novel. I was, frankly, a little impatient that the women characters earlier on in the novel, except for one key character who's absolutely delightful and adorable, didn't seem to play an enormous role until suddenly, late in the narrative, they become crucially important. Is that a design? Yes, yes. Um, so, as I mentioned, one of the things about the novel is this sort of punk idea, right? The yeah. idea of um, rebellion, of, of change. Uh, and so, uh, the, the, the novel by itself, but also the series as a whole, is really about how the world is not just, it's not perfect. Uh, the status quo is, in fact, not very good at all for uh-huh. many people. Um, Mata, you know, wants to return everything to the to the good old golden age. But one of the things that Kuni has to learn uh, as he rises in power is how how unjust the world is, and how mm-hmm. he can take advantage of 
of the oppressed and the people who don't have power to gain power. I mean, part of it is very selfish because he wants power for himself. But part of it is also um, undoubtedly moving the world forward because that's how revolutions happen. I mean, one of the things about revolutions is that they are um, they're not pure. Revolutions are not pure. They're they're mm-hmm. they're 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 never this wonderful story about um, the oppressed coming to um, to win over over their oppressors. Uh, and I think that's one of the frustrations that I have with a lot of epic fantasy. Um, Including Tolkien himself, which is that the, the 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 portrayal of good and evil of of the just ruler and and the oppressed people who, who who follow them into achieving justice is so stark, and it's never like that. Um, yeah. In real revolutions, it's it's always very dirty. Um, you, you have the truly oppressed, and and they're often taken advantage of by one group of elites to change the status quo. Um, to impose a new system that may be slightly more just than before, but ultimately is still about the elites using them as tools to to accomplish yeah. their own goals. Um, you know, the 20th century is full of revolutions that are like that. Um, but you can't you can't say that they're also just purely dirty because um, there is a core of, of of goodness to the way these things happen. So the novel is set up to 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 explain that this is a world that's unjust and it's unjust in very deep fundamental ways. It's not just that there's a tyrannical emperor. It's also unjust in the way uh, class differences are accepted, in the way that gender differences uh, mm-hmm. in power are accepted uh, by custom. Um, and, and so slowly uh, the, the, the novel shows how Kuni um, gradually realizes that this is a differential that he can take advantage of, and he's not a, you know, he's not pure-hearted. But mm. part of what he wants to do is, you know, here here is a differential. Uh, it's like you have a pool of water held back behind a dam, and I can I can do something with this. I can use it to to help me propel my revolution forward. Um, and so so that's why you notice that that switch in the ways that women acquire power and and. Uh, you know, earlier in the novel, the, the ways in which women can acquire and hold power are very much limited uh, uh, by by the way um, the customs of the world are set up. You know, the world is designed so that men do most of the fighting, and and this is a world in which the ways that women can influence and gain power are limited. Uh, and then later on in the novel, you see that this is a fact being recognized by the characters. And characters decide to do different things with this fact, and and, and how they can, um, they can take advantage of it, and how how the women realize that they can collaborate in this process and, and gain agency, and try to achieve power for themselves in a different manner. Uh, and this is by no means, you know, by the end of the novel, by no means the world is 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 changed to some sort of paradise. It's still deeply flawed mm-hmm. in 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 many many ways, and that's the point of the series, right? The series is. Um, in some ways, continuous revolution, continuous change. Um, if if things are wonderful by the end of book two, um, then you know why why keep on writing? The, mm-hmm. the, the world because the improves. New is coming. <laughs> the, <laughs> the world improves a little bit, but but it's not it's not perfect. And so um, you you uh, you know as I told Joe, then the question is, this is is this how much this generation can achieve? Is the task left to the next generation, you know, and then you you find out in the next book what happens. And I think you know, uh, to build on this, that that tension is something that Ken and I worked on um, editorially, and uh, yeah, I think it's it's integral to the to the novel. I mean, you know, I want to put too fine a point on on this, uh, but you know, Native Son to me is one of the most frustrating, beautiful novels I've ever read. Uh, you know, you, you look at bigger and like, ah, oh, just stop, don't do that, don't do that yeah. again and again. And, you know, the, the, the culture that he's stuck in. And, uh, you know, that kind of thing is, it's, I'm glad you're feeling that tension. I'm glad some readers are, you know, because it's deliberate. <laughs> you should. And you can see where it's changing. And that's the evolution. That's that arc. And if it didn't have that arc, then it would be a very different conversation. But, you know, you can see the progression of where it's heading towards. And I think that's important. And it's also, I mean, the other thing I want to say is, mm-hmm. um, I mean, this is obviously a risky move because, you know, it's a long book and, and a lot of people will, it's possible that they'll get impatient uh, with 
um, with the way, uh, as you point out, that the women characters are so constrained early on in the novel mm. that they'll, they'll be, uh, they, they won't want to go on. But so part of the, the, the thing I try to do is to make it clear to the reader in some sense. I don't know if I succeeded, but, you know, that was the hope that that the novel um, or, or the narrative voice, the, the, the overall voice is aware of the fact that this is the case, that this is not done because of some sort of um, unconscious design decision. This is a this is a deliberate choice. I mean, this is this is something I want to emphasize, which mm-hmm. is that in writing a novel like this, it's very easy to justify your decisions by just saying, well, you know, that's how the history books are written. You know, they're mostly men. Yeah. So yada, yada, yada. Uh, you know, and then just throw up your hands. That that is not what I'm doing here. I, I think that's a that's a stupid answer because if you're going to stick you know giant narwhals and space and, and airships into your novel, then why can't you change that part of the, the historical record? Um, so so you know that's that's not what I'm doing. That's not my point. Um, my point is that that the the source is clearly problematic, and. My goal here is to question that source material and to subvert it and to um, to give a new interpretation to it, much like you were saying earlier about how you know Virgil was writing Lavinia, uh, by by trying to um, replicate the initial conditions of that unjust injustice, and then showing how it is possible for people in such a world to actually gain control over their own face and to change it this is this is this is the the, the, all, the overall story is about transformation it's about um change i am not this is not an epic fantasy in which the goal is a return to a golden age of the past no um it's it's about moving forward i think one of the things that frustrates me uh, about some epic fantasy is that they're they're very timid about revolution uh, a lot of the the plot of epic fantasies can be sort of uh, described as the world falls into chaos and then some hero restores order. Mm. That, that is not what's happening here. The, 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 the restoration of order is not the goal. It's about change, make things better, even if it's not perfect. People are flawed, the world is flawed, but there's always hope to make things better. I mean, well, I think that's, yeah, in I, some I, ways, the, the, the American myth again, mm. where we, we do not have a perfect union, but we always believe the union can be perfected. Well, or improved at least. I mean, uh, I have no idea. And I assume both of you pretty much know what's in the second volume now. No. I, I have been <laughs> hiding it from Joe, yes. <laughs> okay. But, but the sense I get at the end of the first volume, and, and, and just a, a quick footnote about the character of, of, of Gia, who is Cooney's wife, and she is a very strong and likable and surprisingly modern character. And she holds... I mean, it's... She's she's Catherine Hepburn to his Spencer Tracy in the in the scenes where they interact that way, uh, but she's the only one at that point. Uh, and later on, as you say, the, the the role of women becomes more central. The sense I get at the end of this novel uh, is uh, that when you say continuing revolution, that's probably as good a description of it as as I can think of. That this is a world which is improvable but probably not fixable. Uh, you're not going to th- you're not, not going to have somebody throw a ring into a volcano and, and make everything good again. It's going to get maybe better, maybe not. Maybe it's cyclical, maybe not. But it's it's not doesn't seem to me to be pointing toward a utopia. No, no, no. It's not. You're you're absolutely right. Uh, it, it is it is c- continuous improvement, but not fixable. In fact, I don't think I think part of the. Um, Part of the thesis of the book um, is that stasis uh, equals death, and and this yearning towards the golden age is a yearning towards stasis, and that's mm-hmm. just not possible. Human nature um, yearns for the more interesting thing, and that is continuous change. Um, we 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 take some steps forward and backward in other ways. That sounds well. I hope we've made people interested in the novel at least. I guess uh, we're almost out of time here, but. Um... I, I, I do want people to go away with the idea that this, I think I found it a very entertaining uh, and different epic fantasy. And I'm somebody who, as, as Joe knows at least, has at some point in the past had my fill of too many epic fantasies. <laughs> sure. Well, I as well, you know. 
I'm with you. So when are we going to see Volume 2? Next year. Okay, so we're going to do this on a one-a-year schedule? It's about uh, 18 months, actually. Uh, so it'll be fall uh, 2016. Okay, and one other thing uh, that, that comes to mind, it just came to me at the moment. When Ken, when you were describing these wonderful pulsating hot air balloons and this gorgeous landscape, uh, it occurred to me, and this, this actually is for, for you as well, Joe, it occurred to me, this is a great, a hugely illustratable novel. It's got terrific images in it. It's got these, it's got these narwhal light things. It's got these <laughs> silk punk things in it. And the cover is a very, the cover could be, uh, it could almost be the cover for Wolf Hall, except for the dandelion. Um, I'm glad you say that. <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's a very distinguished looking cover, but there had to be a decision somewhere along the way that we're not going to do a big fantasy epic landscape painting for the cover. Uh, from the very beginning. Okay, so you knew that. Yeah, yeah. Now we've been very meticulous about uh, what we wanted to represent on the cover of the book. Um, several different layers. And um, yeah, I wanted to evoke something that was more uh, historical and mythic at the same time. And one big uh, influence was the Seamus Haney Beowulf. Oh, okay, cover. that makes sense, yeah. Um, and Which I loved, yeah. Yeah, you know, so, uh, you know, going with that idea, you know. Um, and so we wanted something that, that evoked historical fiction um, more than epic fantasy in some I think ways. That's, because, uh, well, I, mean, I think one of the things with epic fantasy, especially, Ken, with your reputation already, the fantasy and science fiction readers are going to find this book. You don't need to market it to them. They know it's, they're going to know it's there. Uh, the historical fiction readers, the mainstream readers, even the title, The Grace of Kings, is really potentially a generic title. It could be a title uh, based on a, on a, it could be one of Shakespeare, a volume of Shakespeare's history plays. Um, right, right, given the source. Mm -hmm. So I, I hope it does very, very well. Uh, I'd like to thank both of you for being uh, on the podcast tonight. I've, I've learned a lot about this. I'm, I'm, I'm always glad when I find that some of my suspicions turned out to be <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's always fun that way, right? It is, right. So we will look forward to um, the next novel in the series. We didn't get a chance to do a, a brief recap on um, uh, The Three-Body Problem, which, of course, Ken, which you translated for Tor Books, and which is uh, probably the most, I'm, I'm going to say without guessing, uh, without any prior knowledge, probably the best-selling Chinese-language science fiction book ever published in America. Do you think that's it, it, it certainly is the case, according to Amazon. In okay. fact, right now, it's the best-selling book in, uh, in the category of Chinese literature, I think. Really? Th that's what Amazon tells me. Well, again, we should remind... And you know, they, they, they have all the, all the data. So <laughs> they, they, they know everything, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and the second volume of that, which you did not translate, Ken... Uh, but it's coming out sometime soon. July, I believe. July. Either then, July or August. I can't remember exactly when. And then your translation was of the third volume, which will be sometime in the future. That's right. It will be uh, 2016, uh, about eight months after the second book. Tor is, uh, is going on a very fast schedule with the trilogy. So I think there's only eight months in between the books. Uh, well, let us uh, wish the best of luck to Sujin Lu and... For that series, and uh, to you, Ken and Joe, for the Greats of Kings. Well, thank you. And thank you. Talk to you again sometime soon. Reader. Okay. Good night and goodbye from the Coot Street Podcast. Next week, Jonathan and I will be back with something. We don't know what yet. 